0: Good morning to each one this morning. We are, we are considering, uh, starting last week, Christ's passion in John chapters 18, 19, and 20. Uh, that word passion perhaps is a little confusing. It's used in, in different ways, in different manners today. Uh, when we speak of, of Christ's passion, we actually have uh, a Latin word in mind. It's the Latin word passio, P A S S I O, which means suffering. And that's what we have primarily in view when we use that phrase, uh, the passion of Christ. It is a synonym for his suffering. Uh, the suffering he endured on the night he was betrayed, uh, the suffering he endured Throughout his trial, uh, the suffering he underwent at the hands of the Romans and ultimately his suffering as he bore the sin of the world at calvary's calvary's cross so that's that's what our, our focus is, is all about these Sundays uh, trying to enter into the suffering of christ and and always keeping before us always keeping in view the the purpose of that suffering, uh, the goal of that passion, it is summed up in verse 11 of chapter 18. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? As I mentioned last Lord's Day, there are three cups in scriptures In Scripture. There is the cup of salvation, and there is the cup of consolation, and there is the cup of tribulation, also known as the cup of God's wrath. It is a cup that each one of us must drink. Do you realize that? Have you ever stopped to consider that? Uh, You have a rendezvous with an angry God. You do. You have an appointment. An appointment you will keep with an offended God. And we must at some point deal with God's wrath and the offense that we have caused him by our sin. Well, the good news that emerges from these chapters is simply this. There is a savior of sinners, the Lord Jesus, who drank that cup at Calvary's cross. For all who are united with Him by faith, for all who forsake and repent of their sin and believe in the Lord Jesus, embracing Him with their hearts, there is this certainty that the wrath of God is turned away, that cup of tribulation is gone, and we bask in the radiance of the glory of His grace, in that He forgives us our sins through the Lord Jesus. That's the theological significance of Christ's passion, Christ's suffering. Last Lord's Day, we made it through the first 12 verses of chapter 18. We considered Christ's beauty in the midst of betrayal. And today, we're going to try to make it through Christ's trial. It's a long scripture reading. Beginning in chapter 18, verse 13, I suppose, all the way through to the 15th verse... Chapter nineteen. I know that's ambitious. That is a long scripture reading uh, to help us uh, to avoid avoid losing a focus. And perhaps your mind is prone to wander over the mountains and through the valleys and uh, through the meadows or whatever metaphor you want to use. Keep two things in mind as I read these verses publicly. or, or, Or take note of two things. First of all. Take note of three individuals. The first is a disciple named Peter. The second is the father-in-law of the high priest. His name is Annas. The third is the Roman governor, Pilate. Take note of those three individuals in these verses because they all share something in common. They're afraid. Why? Try to answer that question. As we read God's word, why are these three men afraid? Secondly, take note of Christ's long suffering. Against the backdrop provided by Peter's fear and Annas's fear and Pilate's fear, we have the glory of Christ's long suffering. And So as I read, look for those two things. Take note. And try to enter into the narrative this portion of God's word. So beginning in John chapter 18, the 13th verse. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. That was back in chapter 11. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple, likely John. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door, so the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire. Because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves, Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth Crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement. He was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement and an Aramaic Gabatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar, but Caesar. A fear is a, is a normal emotion, isn't it? We've all experienced fear, I don't doubt that, to one extent or another. It's actually it's actually a, a healthy emotion. It guarantees self-preservation, doesn't it? Uh, we fear those things that we think will hurt us. Uh, we fear those things that we perceive will do us harm. Fearing them, we avoid them, hence preserving ourselves, that's a good thing. Uh, Years ago, 1992 to be exact, Allison and I were living in Angola in Africa at the time and we had the opportunity to visit uh, Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe. And we were with friends and one of these friends had the uh, the great idea of uh, kayaking on the Zambezi River up above Victoria Falls. Sounds good, but hold on. We hired a guide and we gathered for breakfast on the banks of the Zambezi. And after that lovely breakfast, he began to explain to us what we had to keep in mind as we began our kayaking adventure and uh, reminded us that the Zambezi is a wild river. The crocodiles, no problem, as long as you remain in your kayak. The hippos, on the other hand, big problem, because if you enter their territory, they see you from above, they could perceive you to be a threat, and they will strike from below. He proceeded to pick up a branch broke it, and with what I think was a twinkle in his eyes said, they will vaporize your kayak. I wanted to turn back. Allison wouldn't hear anything of it. In we went to these kayaks, and wouldn't you know it, halfway through this trip, We entered this portion of the river where these four sets of itty bitty eyes appeared above the surface staring at us. The distance I am from Rick right now. I have never been so afraid in all my life. That's a good thing. To fear something that we perceive is going to hurt us. To fear something that is going to harm us whereby we then avoid it or flee from it. That's a normal emotion that is a healthy emotion. Fear, however, becomes a problem when it is misplaced. Fear becomes a problem when it stems from an error in judgment. What we have in these verses are three cases Three instances of fear, Peter, Annas, and Pilate, an unhealthy fear, a fear that is misplaced, a fear that arises from a distorted value system, a fear that issues forth from poor judgment, whereby each of these men actually fears man. More than they fear God. Oh, the fear of man. Look at these three examples with me. Beginning with Peter. Let me ask two questions of Peter. Very simple. Number one, why is Peter afraid? The answer is also very simple. Peter is afraid for his life. And so look, just by way of example, look at what we have In verse 26, back into chapter 18, verse 26, Peter has already denied Christ twice. And then what do we read in the 26th verse? One of the servants of the high priest. Notice, please notice the next phrase, rather illuminating, wouldn't you say? A relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. Talk about an awkward moment. Peter had been present in the garden. And Peter, with this misplaced zeal, had drawn his sword, had swung wildly, had cut off the ear from the high priest's servant. Well, this servant's relative was present. He saw it all transpire. He thinks he recognizes Peter. Weren't you one of the men in the garden? Peter knows what his next question is going to be. Weren't you the man who cut off my relative's ear? And Peter is gripped with fear. Verse 27, he again denied it. You see, Peter is perplexed. He's perplexed by the events surrounding him. He's perplexed by what has transpired that night. He is perplexed by what is happening to the Lord Jesus. He begins to think in terms of what will this mean for me? What is going to happen to me if I associate myself with Him? I know what's going to happen. Guilt by association. And I really did a foolish thing back there in the garden. And if I make myself known... And if I stand here and now with the Lord Jesus Christ, I may very well pay for it with my life. And he's afraid. He's afraid of man. He, At that moment, Peter fears man more than he fears God. Now, there's a second question. And I better not do this too often this morning or we're going to be here a long time. But I just can't. It, it, it's, a, it's a shift in the train of thought, but I just can't leave Peter alone there for a moment because, because there, there, there is an invaluable uh, lesson uh, in Peter at this stage in the narrative. It, it's simply this. Uh, and, and Christian, you need to learn this, I need to learn this, and we need to learn this well. Challenges come when we least expect them. Actually, let me reword that. The greatest challenges in life come When we least expect them. Peter thought the challenge came in the garden. Peter thought that would be the moment he would prove himself. Peter thought that would be the opportunity to to show that the Lord Jesus was wrong. the Lord Jesus had told him that he would deny him. That he would forsake him. That he would run away. I'm going to show him. And facing down those soldiers... Peter thinks this is the moment of testing. This is the moment of truth. He draws his sword. He thinks this is the challenge. This is where he will prove himself. He was dead wrong. The greatest challenges in life come when we least expect them. The greatest challenge Peter faced wasn't as he, in that, in that, at that time of dread in the garden. It was while he was warming himself by the fire. The greatest challenge wasn't as he faced a hardened soldier. His greatest challenge came in the face of a little girl. Christian, learn that lesson and learn it well. We think, oh, I'm going on a missions trip. The challenges will be unbelievable. Not so. We're on such a spiritual high. The spiritual senses are heightened. No. The greatest challenges come in the mundane, day in, day out of life experience. The greatest challenge comes when we are alone with our thoughts. The greatest challenge comes when no one is around. That is the true test of character. Not what we think we do when the circumstances are daunting, but what we do in the quiet moments of life prove ultimately what we really are. We learned that from Peter. Now shift back to our main train of thought. The first question, why is Peter afraid? He's afraid because he thinks he's going to lose his life. Second question, also very obvious, how does he react Go back to verse 17, still in chapter 18. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? These words are chilling. He said, I am not. Again, in verse 25, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? Here it is again. He denied it and said, I am not. And in the third instance, verse 26, we already read it. The relative of that man whose who's ear Peter had cut off. He asks him, did I not see you in the garden with him? Verse 27, Peter again denied it. And so overcome with this fear of man, gripped with this fear, The possibility of losing his life, he is willing to deny all knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I have to, I have to, this will be the last one. I have to insert another side note here, a truth that's exceedingly important because we know that isn't the end of Peter's story. Right? The lesson, the lesson is this. Restoration is possible after sin. And you look at Peter and you look at what he became. Who was it there standing before the multitudes on Pentecost preaching? That was Peter. Who was it imprisoned just a couple of chapters later in the book of Acts for declaring the name of Jesus? That was Peter. Who was it who was sent to Cornelius, the first Gentile convert? That was Peter. Who wrote two epistles under the inspiration of the Spirit of God? Peter. Who became a pillar in the church at Rome? Peter. Who, according to church tradition, was crucified upside down? Peter. It's not the end of Peter, is it? He sins. He sins terribly. He is a pathetic example in this instance of an individual gripped by fear whereby he denies the Lord Jesus. Oh, but praise God. God is not finished with Peter. God has big plans for Peter. And God brings about a tremendous transformation in Peter's life. And Peter becomes one of the key pillars in the New Testament church. Now back on track. We leave Peter behind. That's the first individual. Why is he afraid? He's afraid of losing his life. How does he react? He denies Christ. The second individual is Annas. He is the father-in-law of the high priest Caiaphas. Annas had been high priest. He was deposed by the Romans. Why is he afraid? He's afraid of losing his position. It isn't worded as such in these chapters, in this narrative, but it comes out loud and clear back in chapter 11. There the council, the Sanhedrin, was it the 71 elders, Jewish elders the San, that constitute the Sanhedrin, they gather and they declare, and it's recorded for us in John eleven forty-eight. 48, if we let Him, that is Jesus, go on like this, everyone will believe in Him. And the Romans will come and take away both Our place and our nation. Remember, if you can go back that far, it it was only a few months ago, uh, chapter 11. We should all know what happened prior to this meeting of the council where they arrived at this decision. The Lord Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. The reports of that tremendous miracle has reached the council, based on what they know to be true, based on what is verifiable, based on what they cannot deny, they conclude, if we let him go on like this, here's what's going to happen. People are going to believe in him. There'll be messianic fever. It will be a mess. The Romans will descend upon us. Yes, we'll lose our nation, but even more importantly, we will lose our place. What will this mean for us? What will this do to us? We are the accepted, recognized, elevated aristocracy within the nation. We've never had it so good. This man could ruin everything. This man could upset the apple cart. And because of their fear of man, their fear of what the Romans might do, what it might mean for them, that is, losing their position. They are driven, they are driven to put an end to the Lord Jesus. That's the second question. How does he react? Annas. Well, they plot Christ's death. And in doing so, Annas ignores what is right. And so Peter, because of his fear, denies Christ. Annas, because of his fear of man, he denies what is right. Right. The Lord Jesus is brought before him. The function that Annas and Caiaphas serve is very simple. It is their responsibility to hear the charges laid against the Lord Jesus. It is their responsibility to hear from the witnesses. It is their responsibility to put together the legal case and then to take that legal case present it before Pilate in order to secure the charge, the sentence of capital punishment. And so that's what Annas and and his son-in-law, Caiaphas, are doing at this stage. Someone who has been charged of a crime, the Lord Jesus, is being brought before them. Their responsibility before this gets any further, before we take the next step, let's hear the evidence. And it better be solid. And let's hear from the witnesses. And yet Annas because of his fear of man because of his hatred of the Lord Jesus completely disregards this trial completely disregards his responsibility and look at what look at what the Jews say in verse 30 when they finally do bring Christ before the Roman governor verse 30 in response to Pilate's question What accusation do you bring against this man? In other words, I assume you've already had your little meeting. I assume the charges have already been laid. I assume you've already furnished all the evidence you know. Well, here we are now. Let's hear it. What accusation do you bring against this man? What is their response? They answered him. If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. In other words, take our word for it. In other words, we don't really have a charge. We most certainly don't have evidence. Witnesses don't even mention it. But here... If he wasn't a bad person, we wouldn't be here. That should be good enough for you. And that should be good enough for you to pass the sentence of death. You see, Annas and Caiaphas, so driven by their fear, so driven by their selfishness, so driven by their hatred, they are prepared to ignore at every turn what is right. So why, again, is Annas afraid? He's afraid of losing his position. How does he react? He ignores what is right. And now there's a third individual, the Roman governor, Pilate. Same two questions. Why is Pilate afraid? Simply put, he is afraid of losing his reputation. When the Jews, this is is most interesting and significant, When the Jews first bring Jesus before Pilate, Pilate shows utter contempt. He doesn't want anything to do with it. That comes out in verse 31. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. I don't want to go anywhere near this. This reeks to high heaven, to be honest. I think I know really what's going on here. I don't want to touch it I don't want anything to do with it. He shows contempt for the Jews. And yet they press him. They press him in verse 31 at the end. It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. That's what we're ultimately after here. Capital punishment. And so you must hear us out. You must pass sentence because we want this man crucified. So Pilate does take some time to speak to the Lord Jesus. In verse 38, he passes his sentence He comes to his conclusion. He arrives at his conclusion and he says there, I find at the end of verse 38, I find no guilt in him. I've spoken to him. I've questioned him. I've heard what you've said. I've heard what you haven't said. This man is innocent. I find no guilt in him. And Pilate is determined to let Christ go. And so what does he do? He adopts three strategies. First of all, he offers to release a prisoner. Verses 39 and 40. There, perhaps he's thinking, well, look, when, when I set the Lord Jesus over here and I set someone like Barabbas over here, a robber, a murderer, certainly these Jews will compare the two. Reason will prevail and they'll recognize that they don't want someone like Barabbas loose on the street and they'll, prepare, they'll be prepared to let Jesus go. He's dead wrong. They would rather have Barabbas out there than the Lord Jesus. His first strategy fails. So he shifts to a second strategy. The first five verses of chapter 19. And what he does here basically is he humiliates Christ. He has him flogged, scourged, verse 1. He has his soldiers twist that crown of thorns and beat it upon his head. He has them array Christ in a purple robe. Mock Christ, verse 3. Strike Christ, also in verse 3. He then brings out the Lord Jesus in this humiliated state, verse 4. See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. I've beaten him beyond recognition. Won't go down that road. We could. I find no guilt in him, but surely you'll have some sympathy upon this man now. Look at what I've done. And surely this will appease your lust for blood. That seeing him in such a condition, seeing him so humiliated and debased, that will be enough and you'll leave this alone. No. What is their cry? Crucify him. And So Pilate adopts a third strategy. Verse 12 of chapter 19. First statement, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. He's like a politician. Well, he is a politician. There's some backdoor bargaining going on here. He's trying to broker a deal behind the scenes in order to secure Christ's release. What's the Jews cry, verse 12, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. You see, and get this, very, get this carefully, this is important. When it was a moral issue, back in chapter 18, verse 30, oh, this man, the Lord Jesus, is an evildoer. What was Pilate's response? I find no guilt in him. And he's prepared to take a stand. When it's a religious issue, chapter 19, verse 17, this Christ is the Son of God. What's Pilate's response? I find no guilt in him. And he's prepared to take a stand. But now it's no longer a moral issue. Now it is no longer a religious issue. It has suddenly become a political issue. Christ opposes Caesar. What is Pilate's response? I still find no fault in him. But he is no longer willing to take a stand. Like many politicians. He's prepared to do what is politically expedient. He is more concerned about his reputation. What will this mean? What will this mean for me? If word travels to Rome and to the emperor himself, that I somehow allowed this individual who was accused of being a king, if I let him loose, if I let him free. So even though I find no guilt in him, even though I know that the Jews are simply motivated by by their hatred, Although I know there is no proof, this man has done absolutely nothing wrong. What does Pilate do? Driven by his fear of man, he turns over Christ to be crucified. How does he react? That's the second question. He ignores what is true. And So Peter, because of his fear of man, denies Christ. Annas, because of his fear of man, Ignores what is right. And Pilate, because of his fear of man, ignores what is true. He says it himself, does he not? In the 38th verse of chapter 18, Pilate said to him, that is Pilate said to Christ, What is truth? He isn't driven by truth, but by expediency. He's prepared to ignore what is right morally and legally. He's prepared to ignore his own conscience. He's prepared to ignore his wife's pleading, not recorded here, but recorded in the synoptics. He's prepared to ignore his own responsibility and position and role as governor. He's prepared to ignore the Jews' obvious hatred. He's prepared to ignore Christ's claims because Pilate only has one thing in view. His own reputation. And he is driven by fear of man. Now you take those three. Did you get them? Are they clearly in your mind? Again, Pilate, uh, Peter. Christ's disciple. Afraid of losing his life. What does it lead him to do? He actually denies Christ three times. I don't even know the man. Annas, driven by his fear of man. The fear of losing losing his position. All that esteem that he enjoyed. What is he driven to do to ignore and reject what he knows to be right? And Pilate, out of his fear of man, his fear of losing his reputation, what is he prepared to do? He is prepared to deny, to reject, to ignore what he knows to be true. It's all summed up. And this verse is found in your outline in the bulletin, Proverbs 29.25. It is all summed up in this verse. The fear of man lays a snare. The fear of man lays a snare. Here we have three instances of misplaced fear. Three men who feared man more than God. Three men who needed to hear and take to heart Christ's own warning. Luke 12:5. I will warn you whom to fear. I will warn you whom to fear. Fear Him, that is God, who after He has killed, has authority to cast into hell. That's who they should have feared. Peter, rather than fearing man, should have feared God. Annas, formerly the high priest, still part of the Sanhedrin, a respected Jewish leader, rather than fear man, he should have feared God. Pilate, though a pagan and a Gentile, he knew enough. Rather be driven and motivated by his fear of man, he should have feared God. I warn you whom to fear. Fear Him, who after He has killed, As authority to cast into hell. What is losing your life in comparison to an eternity in hell? Ask me that. Answer that. What is losing your position in comparison to an eternity in hell? What is losing your reputation in the light of an eternity in hell? You're not a believer, you're an unbeliever, perhaps. That, that, that verse, that warning should, should strike you between the eyes. What is it that inhibits you from giving your life to Christ? What is it that, that stops you from surrendering all to Christ? Is it fear? Is it fear of man? Is it fear of what they'll think in the schoolyard? Is it fear of what they will think at the campus? Is it fear of what they will think in the workplace? Is it fear of what that family member will think? Is it fear of what the consequences and repercussions might be? Is is it the fear of what it might mean? That is a misplaced fear. Fear Him who after He has killed has the authority to cast into hell. And believer, that's relevant for us this morning, isn't it? At times, even we can fall into the clutches of fear. Even we can deny Christ. Even we can deny what is right. Even we can deny what is true. Even we can fall prey to the expedient. And when we do so, we have lost sight of our great God, have we not? And our fear has become completely irrational, misplaced. Fear man. No, says the Lord Jesus. Let me read it for you again. The words of Luke 12:5. I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Now running like an undercurrent throughout these, these verses, this entire section, Christ's trial, we have standing in marked contrast to the fear of man, the long-suffering, of the Lord Jesus, the glory, the glory of His long suffering, it shines forth in three ways, and it is my prayer that the Holy Spirit would give us eyes to see this morning, and that this would really touch touch our hearts as we consider the patience, the endurance, and the long suffering of Christ. It just it leaps out at the page, the written page, in three. Clear ways. Firstly, we see His long-suffering. Christ's long-suffering. We see it in the face of abandonment. That takes us back to Peter, does it not? Peter denies Christ. Those words are harrowing. I am not. I am not. What we always need to keep in view, and John doesn't bring it out very clearly here in the text, but Luke most certainly does in his account of the same incident, is that when Peter denied the Lord Jesus for the third time, it was within earshot. What do I mean by that? Christ heard him. The third time he said, I am not. I do not know this man. And he sealed it with oaths and swearing and everything else. It was within earshot of Christ. Listen to these words, Luke twenty-two, sixty-one. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. Raises a couple of questions. What is Peter thinking? We know what he's thinking. It drives him to tears and repentance, doesn't it? What is Christ thinking at that moment? He turned and looked at Peter. We find the answer to that question back in the Messianic Psalms. We find it expressed so clearly in Psalm 69, verse 20. Hear these words. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair I looked for pity, but there was none. And I looked for comforters, but I found none. Oh, the long-suffering of Christ in the face of abandonment. What would that do to you? What would that do to me if at the moment of trial, darkest moment of life, those whom I had held most dear those who had been most close, closest, denied all knowledge of me. Oh, the glory of the long suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see it not only in the face of abandonment, we see it in the face of injustice. Annas judges Christ. Look in particular at verse 28, because not only is Annas guilty of judging Christ, and judging him without witnesses, without evidence. He is guilty, for that matter, the Jews are guilty of such gross hypocrisy. Verse 28, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters so Pilate's residence. It was early morning. They themselves, most interesting phrase, did not enter the governor's headquarters. Why? So that they would not be defiled. Why? but could eat a Passover. You see, they had this silly notion that by entering through the door of a Gentile's house, they would become ceremonially unclean. The Old Testament never taught that. That was a Jewish tradition. But what we see here is that these Jews are far, far more concerned about their man-made traditions than God's laws. They are far, far more concerned about the externals than the internals. They're not prepared to to, to, to disregard one of their own invented laws a fabrication of their minds by entering through Pilate's door, thereby defiling themselves, making themselves ceremonially unclean, thereby preventing them from partaking of the Passover. They're all conscious about this. They're all concerned about not entering into the house. They're all up in a tizzy and got themselves worked up into a frenzy, lest they defile themselves ceremonially, but they're prepared to show complete contempt for the law of God there stands the Lord Jesus. What moral hypocrisy! Absolute hypocrisy! Oh, but the glory, the glory of the long-suffering of Christ. And then the third instance, of course, is going to involve Pilate. Yes, long-suffering in the face of abandonment. Peter denies Christ. Long-suffering in the face of injustice. Annas judges Christ. And long-suffering... In the face of torment, Pilate abuses Christ. There is the scourging which defies the imagination. There is the crown of thorns. There is the public humiliation. And all of this accentuated by two facts that we must always keep in mind. The first is this, Christ's innocence. Three times Pilate makes it clear. I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. So scourge him. I find no guilt in him. So pound a crown of thorns upon his head. I find no guilt in him. So dress him up in a purple robe. Mock him and beat him. Publicly humiliate him. Oh, the long suffering of Christ magnified by his innocence and magnified secondly by his authority. Look at what he says in chapter 18, verse 36. In the midst of his discussion with Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. He has a kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom whereby he reigns in the lives of all those who subject themselves to him in faith and repentance. That's the first thing I want you to notice. He has a spiritual kingdom. But notice secondly in chapter 19 verse 11 that Christ has a providential kingdom. Pilate challenging Christ. Speak to me. Don't you understand I have authority to do with you whatever I want? Christ's response, verse 11, chapter 19. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. His providential kingdom whereby he himself reigns over all things as God. And here he reminds Pilate that he is but a pawn in the palm of the Almighty. And you couple those two, the innocence of Christ and the authority of Christ, and look at what they did to Him. Oh, how can we not see? How can we not behold the fullness of the glory of the long suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ? Does that move you this morning? Does that stir the heart? To see such glory on display. To behold the character of Christ. I listen to these words penned by Philip Brooks. This is, this is well written. And I trust the Lord will, will bless it to our hearts. He writes, a Christ was born in an obscure village. The child of a peasant woman. He worked in a carpenter's shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held public office. He never had a family. And he never owned a house. He never went to college. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 When the tide of public opinion turned against him, his friends ran away. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend, yet twenty centuries later. And today, he is the central figure of the human race. I am far within the mark when I say, that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man on earth as has that one solitary life. Does that include you? Does that solitary figure grip you? Do you see His glory through the eyes of faith? Do you behold the glory of His long-suffering as He picks up that cup, that cup that is full to the brim with God's wrath, and He drinks it down to the bottom for you? Oh, friend, does it draw your heart out toward Him Does it make you want to put away your sin? Does it cause you to believe in Christ? Our Lord Jesus, we pray that you would take these great truths that we have contemplated concerning yourself and that you would warm our hearts with them by your Spirit. We pray that we would behold your glory. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear. We pray that we would see you as you are displayed in Scripture. And that these stories, these narratives, these texts, these verses may not simply be old news to us, things that we have heard time and time again, but may they be driven home with freshness. May they fill our minds and captivate our hearts. And our Lord Jesus, we do intercede on behalf of those unbelievers here this morning. That this might be the day of salvation. The day in which you become their prophet, revealing your truth to them. The day in which you become their priest, convincing them of your sacrifice at Calvary's cross and its significance. And the day in which you become their king, reigning in their hearts. Until that time of your soon return, that new heaven and that new earth in which righteousness dwells. Our Father, in cultivating faithfulness among your own this morning, we pray that we would be found in all diligence, seeking after you, seeking to know your word, seeking to do your will. And we ask it of your Father in your own precious and worthy name. Amen.